0: New York College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, Friday afternoon, November 19, 1971, Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, continuing the study of archaeology and the New Testament and taking up especially archaeology and the parables of Jesus. Now, this is um, the sheet that I gave out today, that's page six, that's for Monday, And today we'll pick up chapter four in the Wake little book, Archaeology and the Sayings of Christ. Some of this is very easy and some of it isn't so easy. Archaeology and the Sayings of Christ. All right, uh, back with a real easy one. Mr. Beatty, who was the Roman emperor when a large part of the New Testament was written? Nero. Nero. All right. You know, uh, somebody said this thing. See what you think of this. Uh, Paul the Apostle was beheaded by the Emperor Nero. But the day would come when people would call their sons Paul and their dogs Nero. (laughs) And I guess that has come true. I don't know any it. I don't know who said it, but it's an interesting comment. You know, um, when Calvin was... um, Somewhat in the doghouse in Geneva, Switzerland. They threw him out for a while, and later they sent for him to come back. The uh, people um, took it out on Calvin by naming their dog Calvin. Said, come on, Calvin. Hit Calvin. On. <laughs> and they named their dog Calvin. Well, people named their dog Nero, and they named their sons Paul. And I have never heard of a case where this was reversed. I don't know of any dog named Paul. I know one named Snoopy, but uh, that's one named Paul. I think the acting of Snoopy was was absolutely superb. This was the, uh, the whole thing was a marvelous piece of work. But uh, Snoopy ought to have a gold medal for his performance in that play. <laughs> now then, uh, the Emperor Nero, uh, emperor for uh, several years, right in the middle of the first century, and um, this is the time when a large part of the New Testament was written. Now, uh, let's see, huh? it's not chapter four, it's chapter three for the day. The Archaeology and the Parable. Yeah. All right, uh, there's a fellow here named Gaius Petronius. Mr. Brown, do you think he'd be fit to be a member of the Geneva faculty? Oh, now, Gaius Petronius. Well, some schools are taking, you know, under academic freedom, but uh, Gaius Petronius was not exactly a Sunday school boy, and I'm not too sure he was a good state fellow either, but uh, he was an author, and uh, was known to have written some things, and in particular, uh, one book called The Satyricon. Would you uh, gather from that it was a satire movie about the Roman life? Now, uh, he wrote this, and uh, it tells, according to Blakelock, of the disreputable doings of three Greek scamps on the Campanian coast. Evidently, they were people of somewhat disreputable reputation. Now, on what ground does Blakelock link to this man and another man, a Roman writer called Columella, and the writer of Luke and Acts, uh, the Evangelist Luke together and put them in one bracket here what is there that is similar between these three men Mr. Dennison? they were about a like yeah now of course very differently this fellow Gaius um, uh, Petronius here uh, this, this fellow is um, uh, a writer of Scandal and if he wrote about his own times he could write about Scandal because that's what they had plenty of and uh, the other one that's mentioned also wrote, um, not necessarily scandal, but de uh, rustica, that means concerning uh, rural life, country life, um, would also be uh, about the common people. And uh, you wouldn't think of this unless somebody like I could tell you, but there's almost nothing from the first century outside of the city of Rome itself about how common folks in ordinary places lived and what their life was like. And the gospel of Luke is one source, especially the parables of Jesus, in it. One source that that reflects like a mirror or uh, gives you a real uh, image or picture of how ordinary folks live. And uh, these two other Roman writers here do the same. Of course, their viewpoint is entirely different. These two were pagans and Luke was a Christian. But um, notice this. Paragraph 1, page 36. Petronius' novel shows the common life of that age of money making and vulgarity, of low crime and shattered morality among the poor and the undeservedly rich in the marketplace and the slums of Italian ports. The reader becomes aware of the Roman proletariat of a populace about its petty business and varied carnality. Remote from the Palatine and aristocratic vice. It is a world glimpsed briefly by the Pompeian graffiti. Pompeii and Herculaneum, two towns near Naples, you recall, that were buried by a terrific volcanic eruption and um, remained under many feet of volcanic ash until fairly modern times, when they are not even yet completely excavated. And a great deal found at Pompeii that told how uh, people really lived apart from how they were supposed to live. And uh, these graffiti sprawled the on walls, election notices, vote for so-and-so, get the taxes down, and things like this. And there's one there ridiculing Christianity. It has a fellow bowing in front of a man with a donkey head and said, to Gaius or somebody worships his god. That's a slam of Christianity. And Jesus was crucified and with a donkey head the um, graffiti these uh, impromptu uh, amateur scribblings on the walls and the Egyptians of Pyrite give us something about how common people live and the gospel parables. anybody have any idea how many parables there are in the New Testament that contains mm-hmm. all about 30, I believe, something like this, and some are so short that they're called similes rather than parables, but, uh, of course, some are outstanding and and widely known, and uh, Breaklock singles out three here as um, examples of how common people lived in that first century, uh, which can be compared to the meager knowledge we have from these uh, ancient Roman sources like this. this uh, Colin Miller and the other man here, Petronius. How many of you have read Full Body? No None. He read it. How many of you saw the film of it? Well, I didn't read the book, but I saw the film. It was it was, it was very good. And um, I believe isn't this the one that had the chariot race in it? is Ben-Hur? All right, that the that, that fine. That's fair. That's what's the price of for See, that's fair. Really. <laughs> 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 co similar to Ben-Hur. This is a, a historical novel. It's fiction, but uh, based upon real conditions and about the, the uh, very early Christians. Uh, Co-Badis, I think, refers to Peter. Where are you going? Now, um, three parables. What are the three that he singles out here here is particularly, let um, me um, uh, parables, uh, parables, parables, parables all right, now the prodigal son, this um, ought to be called the lost son. This is in Luke 15. There's three parables, all of which have basically the same meaning. We're well, all told by Jesus on one occasion when he was criticized for uh, socially mingling with and eating with what the Pharisees called publicans and sinners, in the distinction, of course, from themselves. who were neither... They thought, neither Republicans and sinners. And uh, the point of them was, of course, that God welcomes sinners who repent and return to him. And um, the lost coin was found, the lost sheep was found, and finally the lost son came home. And uh, all occasions rejoicing when the lost was found. Incidentally, lost there does not mean simply wandered away. If you would uh, get out in the hills uh, off the main highways and fail to find your way home, you would be lost. But in the Bible, where it speaks of the lost son, this means more than that, lost to the owner. That the silver coin was lost to the woman who owned it, and the, the sheep was lost to the shepherd. So that the true owner is failing to get the service and fellowship that he ought to have had. And so the lost son isn't merely the wanted son, but the one whom the father has been deprived of and is suffering the loss of. And that refers, of course, to a relation between us and God. And he shouldn't be called the prodigal son. This means the wasteful son. Is that the important thing about him? Well, uh, Mrs. Wilson, uh, is it sinful to be wasteful? Yeah. Is this the worst of all sins, would you think? No. of course, the Scotch are thrifty and they're
1: supposed
0: to be not wasteful. I think the emphasis in here is not on the fact that he wasted his money, although he did. Many people could do that near home and um, not get any mention made of it. Not that he was wasteful, but that he ran away from his father's house and was lost to his father, and later came back. That should be called the parable of the lost son, or, um, like thought suggests, the parable of the waiting father. That's an interesting way of turning it around. Now, um, here's the Jordan River going right through the middle of Palestine. Uh, in the north is the Sea of Galilee, and in the south end is the Dead Sea. And today, everything to the east of that is part of the kingdom of Jordan. And to the west of it, uh, nearly all, is part of the Republic of Israel. In Bible times, this was uh, divided differently, different, different periods of history, of course, but uh, in general, you could say Israel had the part west of the Jordan, and that was where uh, our part of the Bible snares, and the part east of the Jordan in New Testament times was called Decapolis. Now, what does Decapolis mean? Mr. Brown, can ten, ten, ten towns, literally, the ten towns, and these were ten cities to the east there, starting with Damascus in the far north and going down to Amman. In the uh, south, Ammon is um, the present Ammon, capital of Jordan. It was called Philadelphia in the New Testament times. And Rabbath Ammon in the Old Testament. This is where David had Uriah the Hittite unjustly done to death. Ammon, Rabbath Ammon. This was the southernmost, and so there's those two. And then in between, there were eight others, all on the east side of the Jordan River, the capital. Now, what was the difference in general? Let's say, um, old population and activity and culture between the the uh, capitalists on the east of the Jordan and the the area where the <coughs> Jews mostly lived on the west. Or was it about the same. The Gentiles, we mean the sure. Yeah. Now, Jews also, but this was the part where the Jews and the Gentiles were rubbing shoulders, and there was um, constant contact and some conflict between them. And uh, this was a place that was much more affected by Greek and Roman life than the parts of the west of the Jordan. These ten cities, starting with Damascus, greatly uh, influenced by uh, Greek and Roman culture and civilization. And the parts of the west still dominated by uh, Jewish thinking and uh, the old ways. Now, the uh, place that you see, it says in the parable that the uh, elder son got his share of the money and this illustrates what was evidently a common custom. You could wait till your father died for your share, or you could have an option to get it during his lifetime. You get a friend and you don't get it again later. But um, he asked for and received his share of the family property. Incidentally would the older son get half, more than half or less than half. More remember the story of Jacob and Esau? The birthright conveyed the title deed to the larger share of the property, and the oldest son would be the one rated with the birthright, and he would get twice as much as any other heir. So if there were two sons, he'd get two-thirds, he'd one get one-third. Three sons, he'd get half years, he'd get a quarter, and so on. So the older son got his share. It must have been a substantial sum. And uh, soon after, packed up and left and went to a far country. Now, where does uh, Blake Lotz suggest this poor country was? Mister. uh... Yeah, Gerash, or, uh, or called Geresta in, uh, in the uh, New Testament times, and called Jerash, G-E-R-A-S-H, today. You hear a Chinese preacher tell the story of his prodigal son, and he will inevitably say this lady went to Shanghai. That's the bad and bold city of the Far East. You want to go to the devil, why Shanghai is the place of choice. We're doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, yeah, Mr. Ben., <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's one of them. <laughs> and there's a picture there in your book, page 37, taken uh, in our own time here. This colonnade of pillars. Uh, there's a full circle of it. It's remarkable. the it seems have remained standing. You notice also on these pillars, about two feet up from the ground, there are lighter pillars in the top part. And it explains in a note, this is the part that was underground and has been excavated. So there's this difference in uh, the weathering of the pillars, which produces this different tone of the sort. Now, this place, he says, was um, uh, kind of a wicked sort of a big city from the standpoint of the Jews in the New Testament. And in the far country, this didn't mean he went to India or China or any place like that, but... um, the obvious place to go if you're running away from home would be Saratoga or and He uh, could get there, he says, in two days on foot. It wasn't too hard to get there. But when you'd gotten there, life was different from what it was at home. His kids run away from home. Read about a little boy who put a note out to his mother: "Dear Mom, I hate you. I'm running away from home. Please put me up a real nice lunch. Lots of love, Billy." <laughs> So, uh, that wasn't the way the prodigal son did it, he, he went and, and, and stayed there. And, like I he describes this place. and says this would be very well fit the idea of the older son who went to a far country and squandered his money in riotous living. Now, uh, that isn't a bit hard to do. You set your mind to it. You can squander your money in riotous living. This is the uh, way you can get most anywhere, But, Gerash was the place to do it. A country far enough that the common way of life was set aside the quiet dignity of the old-fashioned household in Galilee. Now, he suggests here, I think this is guesswork, because Bikoff has no proof of this, but he suggests that uh, the older son in this parable had uh, been listening to lectures on philosophy by some um, traveling Greek uh, <coughs> merchant of wisdom, some uh, itinerant Greek sophist, who puts doubt about his religious faith into his mind. So this fellow gets the idea that um, what his father and mother believes is out of style and is no use, There's no good, and um, that the thing to do is to get away from home and to be yourself and stand on your own feet and have your own identity. And um, so he wasted everything and spent it on Uh, all sorts of worldly and some sinful pleasures, until he went broke. And then there came a famine, of course. Now, meanwhile, the father was waiting for him. And finally, the um, prodigal son, you remember, came to himself. A Chinese preacher was telling this, and he told how the prodigal son, when he left home, had taken all the clothes he could. And he had about ten suits, er, one on top of the other. And when he got financially strapped, he took one off and pawned it at a pawn shop. And then when that money was gone, he took off the next one and pawned it. Until finally he said, when he came to himself. (laughs) (laughs) He said, how many hired servants of my father had enough to spare, I will arrive. Now needless to say, that doesn't mean that he reached home in a state of um, his absolute original birthday suit, but um, when he came to himself. Um, he decided he would go back to his father's house. And um, after a, an interim there, you recall, of feeding swine. And nobody even gave him any of that, except that the pigs were eating. He couldn't even have any of that. And so he went back. Now this parable is well known to us. Incidentally, did you know that it is a favorite of religious liberals? Because there's no Christ in it, there's no atonement, and there's no Holy Spirit in it. And so they say you don't need the atonement, you don't need Christ to die and be raised again from the dead, and you don't need the Holy Spirit to give you a new heart or cause you to be born again. All you need is to make up your mind, just say, I'll go back to my father and God will take you back. That's all there is to it. Now, um, of course, the parable of the prodigal son was not told to teach a complete system of theology. Neither were any of the other parables. Each parable has one point. And you can you can um, <coughs> gauge what this is by the occasion for which the parable was told, and this was told to answer the criticism about eating with publicans and sinners. And it is not a Reader's Digest condensation of systematic theology, and was never intended to be. And uh, you get these other things from other parts of the Bible, of course. But it is true the parable of the prodigal son has been featured by liberals who do not believe in the. Let's say the atoning death of Christ or his resurrection, and so forth, and who do not believe in the Holy Spirit. <coughs> now, uh, the uh, parallel of this, this is question um, 36 now, from the Egypto-Roman papyri, a story that uh, is a partial parallel of this. What is the point of comparison here? This is from uh, Antonius Longus to Nelus, his mother. This fellow writes a letter to his mother. To a young folks away from home, write to their parents. I read about a kid who went to scout Camp, and folks didn't get any letters back from him. One day, there came a postcard. Dear Mom and Dad, they marched us into the dining hall pavilion and are making us write a letter home. Love, Billy. Sign his name. <laughs> and that's all they got for a letter. For a letter. True to life. Uh, he's writing to his mother. I don't suppose he wrote much to his mother when the sky was blue and the grass green and money in his pocket. But now things are different. And uh, maybe it was all he could do to raise the postage for this letter. What is the main point here about uh, his returning home? Why does he hesitate to go back? Well, Mr. Harris, why is he He's disgraced, his He's disgraced his family and he asks for forgiveness, but he says, uh, He's ashamed to go home because he's clad in rags. Shame to go home. You suppose he was clad in rags when he left home? Probably not. But uh, this is parallel. You see, quite parallel to the story of the prodigal son as told by Jesus. Do you suppose that? Yeah, Mister
1: Nick.
0: <coughs> he, uh, he he arrived home in rags. All right. The father said, uh, "Put the best robe on him." He must have taken the rags off and put the best robe on. And she was on his feet, presumably he didn't have any, or if he had any, they were worn out. And so uh, you can see from this that he did return home in a <coughs> tired way. We used to use in China a large poster of them, uh, among illiterate the people. I couldn't read much, or couldn't read at all. He had large pictures, three yards square. And one of them showed that fellow all dressed up in the fanciest Chinese outfit of silk and satin as you could imagine, um, in a mirror. But the actual fellow was clad in absolute rags, but, uh, but he, was, he was dressed up like a, like a real gentleman, but he saw himself in the mirror in rags and tatters, uh, just like the prodigal son thing. And the point of this was, we think of ourselves as very righteous and uh, tend to oh uh, excuse ourselves and extenuate ourselves and claim we're really pretty good. But God sees us as we really are, and the mirror of God's word reflects us as we really are, not as we think we are. So, well, the prodigal son came home in rags and tatters, hungry and perhaps dirty, and certainly uh, ragged. And um, he was ashamed to go back because of his condition and his appearance, but asked his parents to receive him. You suppose they did? Just telling the story here. and and Antonius Longer. Well, I can imagine they did. Now, on the other hand, um, do parents always take their kids back when they come home after having disgraced the family? It's always happened. My son Ray, some of you know who he is. He uh, graduated here two or four years ago. He works in the Youth Development Center at Newcastle. Isn't that the most uh, euphonious name for a reform school? Youth Development Center. They've got the really tough bad boys of western Pennsylvania in there, from Pittsburgh and area, kids that have
1: been in armed
0: robbery, have stolen cars three or four times and wrecked them and so forth, and not old enough to send to an ordinary servant. And um, there was a kid in there, father was a Jewish dentist in Pittsburgh, and this fellow came to the end of the time he'd been sentenced to be sent there and was to go home. And Ray called his parents up, and they said, We don't want him back now or ever. And Ray had to tell this fellow, Your father and your mother say they don't want you back now or ever. He said it was the hardest thing he ever had to tell anybody. And this lad, Jewish boy in there, said, I have been afraid for years I'd hear something like that, but I hoped I'd never hear those words. And uh, Ray went around to the... Jewish rabbi up there to see if he could find somebody who would look after this kid and, and do something for him make him feel like maybe he had something for him but uh, <clears throat> that attitude and we had a case some years back before you were in college of two fellows that um, what did they do they broke into a freight car at Wampum and stole some TV sets and uh, huh
1: <coughs> yeah
0: well so, alright they were both suspended from college and one family help their son get back in college again. And the other family said, Nope, he's had it. He's born it. And we don't want anything further to do to help him. Now, that's not the way for parents to be. Certainly not. All right, now here's an example of this Here's This fellow, uh, Eric Clyde, just in 37, got a of the, the Mopalite. There's a mistake in your book. Name. That should be Nome. N-O-M-E. That's uh, uh, Egyptian township, political or uh, administrative unit, N O M E, Nome. And, and then he's the elders, and so forth. Our son Castor, along with others, by riotous living, has squandered all his own property and now laid his hands on ours and desires to scatter it. On that account, we are taking precautions lest like he should be should deal decisively with us or do anything else in this. He begged you, therefore, that proclamation be set up, Francis, that no one should lend him money. And when your father and mother get to feeling that way about you, you're in a bad condition. This is, of course, the opposite of the prodigal son in the Bible. And there's another example of this, question 38. A father who had hoped his children would be nice to him and take care of him in his old age and found they wouldn't, and he uh, disinherits them officially. goes to the courthouse and swears out a deed of disinheriting, or disownment. They are not my son, and they are not my daughter, and I don't recognize them anymore. And he says, I reject and I abhor you. This document runs on with legal abuse for 500 words. So, Breckwock's conclusion is the father who killed the fatted calf and fell on the neck of his son and embraced him was... Somewhat of an exception in the ancient world about this kind of thing, gracious beyond custom, and uh, <coughs> points a little moral about this here. Now that's for the parable of the lost or prodigal son. Next one, the parable of the unjust or dishonest steward. Does this one ever bother you in reading the Bible? Well, why does it bother? You? remember the story the dishonest steward who was fired and he got all the creditors of his um, the debtors rather who wrote money to his master in and uh, falsified the accounts so as to win people's goodwill and favor and later the, his master discovered that he had done this and praised the unjust steward and said he'd done wisely it seems like if the uh, master there stands for God that God is praising somebody for being crooked is that, is that right? Well, what uh, is the real point of the parable of the unjust steward in the Bible? First place, understand the, the mechanics and the framework of this parable. This man is charged with being incompetent and is fired. But before he leaves the job, he holds a mass meeting and gets all these people that owe his master money in. He's careful to get them all in at one time and place. They're all in on it, so there's nobody left that could tell on the others. Everyone is involved. They can't... Um, can't anybody squeal without involving themselves. Very smart. How much do you owe, my master? 100 bushels a week. All right, sit down and we'll, we'll change this document to look like you only owe him 80. And I'll plant it. How much do you owe 50 gallons of while. All right, uh, here, we'll fix that up to show them uh, you owe 30. And he scaled down all these debts so that all these people are under obligation to him. And therefore, when he's thrown out from his job of being steward, um, business manager, he's got all this circle of families that he has a claim on now and has blackmail over. If they won't take him in as a house guest and uh, feed him and so forth, he can tell on them. So he's got his future made. He said, I'm just too weak to, to dig and I'm ashamed to beg, but uh, I've got fix it fixed up so they'll take care of me, my social security plan. I'll fix up here. And the master, not God, but the master or proprietor of this establishment, praised the unjust steward. Now, the point of this is, and Jesus said, the children of this world are wiser in their generation than the children of white. This man wickedly and perversely used money to accomplish his purpose, As he used money, or misused it, to get what he wanted, so we should learn to use money for good and for the glory of God and the true benefit of ourselves and others. That's the real point of this parable, and the point of it is not that God is unjust or that he commends injustice, but he commends prudence and wisdom in handling money. And this is what we need to have. Is that what you understand me, Mr. Brown? I think so. This has caused a lot of eyebrow-raising, people seem to think that this is somehow an endorsement of fraud or crookedness. I think it should not be, not really. All right, um, the parable of the unjust steward, uh, like how she scribes it here, in uh, question 40, from the Egyptians of Pairi, quite a band of scoundrels in office can be assembled. In the earlier edition of the book, he said, camp's in office. Mr. is there any difference between a camp and a scoundrel? (laughs) All right, they crooked politicians and office-holders. Do we have him today? You know uh, Robert Pierce in Pittsburgh that you see on the TV that is exposing corruptions in the Pittsburgh tax office and police department. Every once in a while you see him. Robert Pierce. He's a Geneva alumnus. Father was a missionary in Africa. He was a Geneva student, <coughs> and um, he's uh, really digging out the dirt about the uh, political life of the city of Pittsburgh, and uh, he, gets, he gets a real good on him. Quite amazing. All right. Uh, from the Egyptian papyri. Now here, first of all, we have an example here in section 40 of the uh, papyrus document. It's a complaint about Seth. Bottom of page 40 to Serapion, chief of police from Orson, center of Seth, son of Arpaces, notable of the village of Euphemeria in the division of Demetrios. All I need. In the month of before the past 14th year of Tiberius Caesar, I was having some old walls on my premises, demolished by the mason, Petosuchus, son of Petosuchus. And while I was absent from home to gain my living, Petosuchus, in the process of demolition, discovered a hoard which had been secreted by my mother in a little box as long ago as the 16th year of Augustus Caesar, consisting of a pair of gold earrings weighing four quarters, a gold crescent weighing three quarters, and so on. By varying the attention of his assistants and my people, he had them conveyed to his own home by his maiden daughter, and after emptying out the aforesaid objects, he threw away the empty box in my house. He even admitted finding the box, so he pretends that it was empty. Wherefore, I request, if you approve, that uh, the accused be brought before you for the consequent punishment. Farewell. Owner surface, age 50, scar on the left forearm. I wish you could identify the guy. <laughs> What would you call it? A lawsuit? A complaint to the police, or what? Well, it's a complaint to a government official about a crooked act, and of course uh, he would have to prove this. He couldn't simply just accuse him of it. That's one. Next one, uh, bottom of page forty-one, um, the question of the uh, dividing of money and. Uh, All the details given there, 41 and 42, and it uh, accuses somebody else in there of being uh, dishonest in the handling of this money. Quite a complicated set of affairs here of different relatives and names that are mentioned there. And a third example, page 42, Trifon, son of Dionysius, son of Trifon, and so forth. Again, an accusation about uh, the... uh, failure to fulfill a contract about uh, training a young boy as an apprentice and um, failing to live up to obligations that had been paid for. Brad comment on human nature that such societies produce graft and offer unbounded opportunities for the nefarious activities of such scoundrels as the unjust steward and tax collectors of the gospel. Now, um, when Jesus told this parable, this would Would deal with a situation which would be uh, fairly common in their minds. They probably not only knew of one unjust steward, but of twenty, and uh, this kind of thing would ring a bell. It says the common people heard Jesus gladly because he spoke about things that were experiences of theirs and that were common knowledge that they knew about. Now, uh, speaks here of the crocodile cemetery. Middle of page 43, I mentioned this to you before. The crocodile was sacred in Egypt, on demise received honorable burial, sick of finding the dry carcasses which he hoped, hoped for sarcophagi and backsheesh. What is backsheesh? Again, we had this earlier in the term. Mr. Mary, what's backsheesh? A reward or a bribe or a tip. We call it a tip, you know And um, Workman smashed one open with a pick and revealed it was stuffed with waste to most the documents, official records, and Menkus' note was among them. This is what Menkus wrote. Now, what is the scandal about this guy Menkus, turned up by this preparatory? Who was he, and what did he try to do? Well, uh, Mr. May. Yeah, now the opposed to Mrs. Yeah, he tried to buy the office, and the town clerk, and um, Blacklock says this office was honorary. It had no salary, and uh, it had apparently only nominal functions. Uh, in Kentucky, if you're anybody, you can be made a colonel. And you get a certificate from the governor of Kentucky that you are a Kentucky colonel. What can a Kentucky colonel do? Well, he can hang that thing up in a little red frame on his wall, that's all. And uh, it's an honor only. See, it's like if we would say, well, uh, President Nixon visits uh, Paris and is given the keys to the city. This is a pure honor. There's no use to get in or out of Paris by, but it's an honor. And uh, so something like this. Here's an honorary office, and he wants to pay money to get it. Why do you pay money to get an office that is, in itself, purely honorary. And he will pay uh, at the uh, village so much wheat, and so much vegetables, and so much beans, and so much uh, mustard, and so forth. Total 100 units here, arts to by. First, he thought, was honorary. He offers payment. And his letter mentions no recipient and there is no date. His undertaking to cultivate certain land is also mentioned. Now then, uh, why was this guy wanting to do it? According to um, Blake Lott, this was to get himself wrangled into a position where he would be able to make some crooked money. The post itself was honorary, but this would get him into a situation where he could make some money by various crooked means. And he seems to have been quite a guy in this way. Um, a real then You notice the the piece about the peach market. What was the uh, story about the peach market here? Well, the peaches were grown, raised, and sold. What is uh, Minkus trying to get somebody else to do about the peaches? Well, Mr. Johnson? Yeah, get a, a corner a Monopoly. Buy up all the work. Now this wouldn't be hard to do in any place in Egypt where the amount of land devoted to raising peaches would be quite limited. Get them all so that nobody has peaches for sale except you. And then you can raise the price by the free and get your money and, and, and get a, make a killing out of it. If you can, buy up all the peaches on the market. Don't neglect it. It's to God's will the government is about to market them. Don't be faint-hearted. Manage this so that peaches can be brought through you alone. And I know you will not suffer as far as I'm concerned. So uh, he's going to get a what do you call it a kickback. This guy's going to sell the pictures at an inflated and um, unfair price because he has all there are. And then this official mentions that uh, like this letter. He will he will protect him, but of course, undercover there will be a deal about this, and he'll get part of the money. <laughs> hey, who was it wrote it? Doesn't say. Didn't say.
1: Didn't he,
0: Prices, yeah. All right. Now, this was a, a um, crooked deal in any case. Now, notice here, bad men like mencus may have looked for more than inside information on marketing legislation. He would also have a chance to, um, to frame people and cheat on taxes. Do we have complaints about this kind of thing today? Well, sure. And our tax laws are very inequitable. Some people pay much more than they should, and others much less on real estate and property. But um, here is uh, a claim here, this is question 42. Uh, this has been substantiated not by just one papyrus discovery, but by quite a number. Complaints about um, the tax assessment, and um, one complaint that it was based on um, names of people who were living in the cemetery, in other words, already dead. I have read of towns in this country where they had uh, people who were dead and buried on the voter registration rolls and some living people would come in and vote their own ballots and then go out and come back later or maybe at another voting precinct and and vote again the name of somebody that was already dead. And that way get two votes in and maybe several votes in in that way. There's nothing new. This this kind of thing was done in the ancient world too. Now, uh, a tax, he says, on everything... This uh, is reflected, of course, in the, in the New Testament too. Even the tax on grave digging. I heard of somebody said he couldn't afford to go to the hospital. It was too expensive, but he absolutely couldn't afford to die. That was uh, even more expensive. He couldn't have a tax on grave digging. All right. Um, now, the third parable here is the parable of the wheat and the tares. And uh, this was told by Jesus, What are cares? Is it Mr. Obey?
1: Well,
0: this is, uh, I think they call it in this country. The raise wheat and it uh, looks exactly like wheat in the early stages of its growth. You can't tell them apart when the wheat comes up. Only it doesn't produce any wheat. It's a wheat, a Wheat and cares of wheat and sheets. And uh, later on, uh, when they harvest it, it's only the real wheat plants produce kernels of wheat that are worth anything. And uh, Jesus told this parable. Somebody had planted wheat, and then an enemy came and sowed tares. That is the seed of this pesky wheat. And the servants of the landowner found it out and asked, should they go in and pull up the tares? Remember what the owner said? He said, yes, huh? He said, no. (laughs) Why not?
1: You want to pull up the yeah. yeah,
0: shouldn't pull up the tares lest you pull up the wheat. Now, this is, um, let's say, um, this warns us against the danger of trying to get a perfectly pure church by throwing all the hypocrites out. You might pull out some real Christians in the process of doing it. You might, you might, it's mixed up as to who is who. And uh, the field, however, is not the church, it's the world. Should we go out and, uh, let's say, have a, Christian Pennsylvania by rounding up all the people that aren't Christians and shooting them. this gives us a Christian state here. Well, of course, we would have no right to do that. And the owner said, wait until the harvest and then we'll separate the wheat from the tares and the tares will burn and the wheat will gather into my barn. The harvest would be when Christ returns at the judgment day. And the true and the false will then be separated but it is not possible for us absolutely to separate them before that, and this warns against the attempt to do so, in the tarot. Now, how about the early Christians? Did they have, were they all, um, let's say, um, sincere and true believers, or did they have some that you could call tarot? Well, there's a letter here from Pliny, a uh, Roman official in uh, what we would call Turkey, Asia minor, Bithynia. And uh, Bacchus says he might have met Paul, only Paul never, never got that place the Phineas near the Black Sea and he writes to the emperor what is the third word of Pliny's letter to the emperor Trajan Mrs. Wilson yeah, now Christianity therefore is rated as an illegal religion you realize the Jews in the Roman Empire had wangled for themselves a preferred status. This was a religio licita, a licit or permitted religion. And as long as the Christians were supposed to be merely a sect or denomination of Jews, they got in under this too. But when it became evident later, after, especially after um, Jerusalem was destroyed in, in the year 70, that uh, Christianity was a religion in its own right, on its own feet, and not simply a branch of the Jewish faith, And the Christians had problems and they had trouble. And this was considered an illegal religion. It's the same of thinking, but everything is considered illegal until proved legal. You know, turn it the other way around. And uh, you know, it was said in Japan before World War II. The labor unions were illegal. And why? Because the Parliament of Japan had never enacted a law permitting the existence of labor unions. Therefore, they're assumed automatically to be illegal, and everything else is illegal. All right. Um, now, so this is considered an illegal religion, and he proceeds against them as he would against uh, thieves and uh, bandits. And uh, how does Tony say he handles it about the Christians? Well, did he tell them all? Yes, <coughs> Mary? We give them one last chance this time they went not Christians right, yeah. And um, now, in the, in the, do you think it'd be easy to be a Christian under those circumstances and stick with it? This would put a terrible temptation in the way of the Christians. At, in 1900, at the time of the Boxer uprising in China, Boxers means the nearest thing uh, we have heard be the Ku Klux Klan, and that is Society of Harmonious Crists, a secret organization. They killed thousands of Christians in 1900. And uh, a lot of missionaries, even little babies they killed. But the the boxers surrounded a girl's, a Chinese Christian girl's boarding school. And then they hollered inside for the girls to come out. And outside they fixed a cross on the ground and they were to stamp on this and spit on it to show that they weren't Christians. And anybody that would, they'd let them go free. But if they refused to spit on and step on the cross, they were beheaded. And uh, the girls wouldn't come out and understand them. So they bought set fire to the building. And when the fire began to blaze, well, they came out and passed this place where the cross was on the ground. And only two or three out of the, I'm sure the exact thing, nearly a hundred, I believe, only two or three spent on and stamped on the cross. And the rest were beheaded as martyrs for their faith. Uh, you know how easy it is for us. and how hard for some people in some parts of the world and at some time. This was something like plenty here, it deserves a death penalty to be a Christian, but we'll give you one more chance to prove that you're not. And all right, if you don't um, come across this time, well, you'll be punished for it and put to death. And this, this um, procedure wasn't successful, according to Dracoff's book. He quotes again from the next page. Well, it wasn't evidently completely so, but um, notice there, at the lower part of page 48, the temple are beginning to be frequented, Sacred festivals of the pagan religion, you see. And so some of the Christians had, the bell's not working real quick, (coughs) some of the the Christians had evidently given up their faith in order to save their life. And uh, this is uh, what we get from this letter from this man, Pliny. Now there was one more, just a minute, one more gimmick they had. Would it be right for you to stand up before the governor Pliny and say, I'm not a Christian, to save your life? All right. Okay. The real Christians wouldn't do this, but here's the gimmick they had. They wouldn't sacrifice to the pagan gods, but they would go to a magistrate and say, look here, I'll give you five dollars if you'll... I'm not going to sacrifice to the gods, but I'll give you five dollars if you write out a certificate saying that I did sacrifice to the gods. So they'd get one like this, and take this and show it to the magistrate. Here's the proof. I offered sacrifice to the gods of Rome. They wouldn't tell him. They didn't do to it. But they would, they would offer this false certificate that they had bought with money. To get themselves out of being persecuted. Now I wonder, what do you, Mrs. Wilson? What do you think? Is it right like to do that? I
1: really hard saying. Yeah. You can Well,
0: perhaps we should not pass a harsh judgment on those people. And The church received them back. Say uh, afterwards came around and said, "I did it. I'm sorry." There was one party the. Uh, uh, one one party in the
1: church, Augustine had to fight against the church.